Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Tuesday Buckeye Talk. We're back to football. Douglas Maurice, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means. If you want to hear two hours of yelling about basketball, you can listen to the Monday podcast. If you care at all about basketball or sort of the standards of Ohio State athletics, I have a thing I would like to do in the next two weeks to address the standards of Ohio State athletics that I think applies across the board, where it doesn't apply, where it does apply, but that'll be for later. For now, we are continuing to go through this football team, Nathan. Based off the great interview session we had last week, we wanted to give everybody their fair shake. Today, we're doing Larry Johnson on the defensive line. We have Perry Aliano and Tim Walton planned for later this week. We have Jim Knowles and James Lordanitis planned for later this week. We're going to hit Mark Pantone in the recruiting operation later this week. But we're going to start with Larry Johnson. And for both of you guys, Nathan first, and then Stephen, I want to get you right off the top. I think we might be at an interesting point. With Larry Johnson, in that Ohio State football has not faced since Woody, since Woody really has not faced like, hey, this is a an absolute legend, one of the greats, who's now getting older, and the questions that arise from that, not the insistence of like oh, that's, that's it, but the questions that arise with that, right? Because Jim Trestle saw his end before we got to that. But we know what this looks like with college football head coaches. And I didn't have time to look it up, but I wrote a story like five years ago now, probably, about the relationship between Larry Johnson and Tyquan Lewis and how Larry Johnson was maybe starting to think about retirement. And then here was this kid that maybe was like, that's why you stick around because of this kid. Because Tyquan Lewis needed Larry Johnson. He didn't just need a good coach. He didn't just need a mentor. He needed Larry Johnson. What did Larry Johnson do? Larry Johnson took this three-star from North Carolina and helped turn him into the Big Ten Defensive Lineman of the Year and a second-round NFL draft pick and a guy who not only maximized, but I think overachieved his potential at Ohio State. What a story. That's what Larry Johnson does for people. But Nathan... The angle of that was, hey, this is a guy who's maybe thinking about hanging it up. And we are way past that now. He's 70 plus. 
years old. And I'm not trying to say, no one's trying to get Larry Johnson out of here. But is it something that now is on our minds? And then Stephen, I think, can get into this even more. It's certainly one of those things that comes up in recruiting. And I'm sure other teams bring it up in recruiting. But Nathan, just generally, this guy is as good as it gets with what he does. But he's now been doing it for a really long time. Yeah, I was listening back to his interview today, this morning, and then obviously we've had these discussions with him in the past. And it, I, this is probably a very insulting analogy, but I'm going to go ahead and make it because I think it's maybe a, a touch point for what we want to actually say here. But to me, is Larry Johnson like a great TV show? Is like comparing is Larry Johnson like Game of Thrones, where like those first few seasons of the show are like transformational. Like they change the way people look at television. They are must see like appointment TV every after every uh, Sunday night on HBO. Everybody comes in Monday and they can't wait to talk to everybody about it. And that's how the early seasons of Larry Johnson were. And now it's getting into the later seasons. And maybe the show isn't as good as it was those first few seasons. But isn't it better than most everything else that's still on TV? Like that's the maybe the the point of the Larry Johnson discussion is um, you can't always just judge a guy by a player, coach, whoever, by the very best that they've ever done. You also have to judge them by what else is being done out there in college football. And isn't Larry is Larry Johnson um, in the the back of his career still better than what Ohio State would go get from somebody else? And for instance, if Jeff Goodman was on this podcast, he would compare Larry Johnson to the worst years of the Fad Mata era and say, "Aren't you lucky <laughs> to have Larry Johnson compared to that?" Steven, be careful what you wish for. Is this go listen to basketball two hours of basketball shouting? <laughs> Steven, two hours. I haven't, I went to listen to it this morning. It wasn't up here. I didn't see it. I'm two hours. Well, Steven and I did 90 minutes. And then I told Steven, you know, I'm just going to wrap up a couple things, go yeah. ahead and leave. And then my couple things wrap up. <laughs> Got away from so, me. The thing is, uh, wrapping up a couple of things for normal people is like 10, 15 minutes. Wrapping up things for Doug is two and a half hours while then having to cut some of it down. It's like, you know what? Maybe this is too much. Hey, yeah. What about this? I didn't even think <laughs> of that. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's so a that lot of pod, that. That pod was longer than any actual Ohio State basketball game that's been played this year. But also, more interesting <laughs> than any Ohio State basketball yeah. game oh, that's yeah. been played this year. We lived so, up to the hype. <laughs> At least it's – at least, yeah. It might not be good. I didn't say it was good. I didn't say it was better. I said it was more interesting. Yeah. Buckeye talk. Steven, wh- where does this become a recruiting conversation? Are we there? I feel like we've danced around this at times in the past where Ohio State or Larry Johnson has said, like, hey, man, like, they'll, they'll, like they, anybody who's doing that, I'm not going anywhere, right? Like, where are we with the recruiting conversation around this? Yeah. You said you wrote that story five years ago or five years into this. And it feels like every off season, that's the main conversation. When we talk about defensive line recruiting is are the top guys in the country are other schools telling them that, Hey, Larry Johnson's probably not going to be there your entire career. I mean, when we were going through the whole JT Tui Maloa saga, that was part of it is, you know, is Larry Johnson going to be there by the time JT's the best version of himself. And that's a thing every off season. And it will be until he retires, which is what Nathan brought up with him talking. He was saying, you know, I wonder if Nick Saban gets these conversations and these questions all the time. And he does. He just yells at the media. And Larry Johnson's just a nicer human being from that standpoint. So they deal with it differently. But you know, I, there aren't recruits who are wondering whether 
Nick Saban's going to be there the entire time that they're at Alabama because they're still putting together elite recruiting classes. And so it's kind of the same thing with Larry Johnson here. So then I approached it a different way. It's less about what other schools are doing and maybe what Larry Johnson isn't doing because he is older. And when you get older, you get set in your ways and you have a style that you like to do things. If you like your coffee in the morning at 9 a.m., you like your coffee in the morning at 9 a.m. And if someone gives it to you at 9.05, you're probably yelling at the sky. So I, I, I wanted to know whether it's because of NIL or because you struck out three times this past year with three highly rated guys where typically Larry Johnson plays closer. Closer didn't work this time. Does that change your approach at all? And yes and no, there is some of this that they're not going to go after the guy who was clearly just in it for the NIL pitch and stuff like that. But you do have to continue to evolve with the times. And as you get older, it gets a little bit more difficult to be able to do that. But you have to continue to do it. Or if if you don't, then you do end up being the last season of Game of Thrones where it's a complete letdown at the end of the end of the road there. Great analogy, by the way. Would you say, Larry, that this recruiting class was kind of like the season where Arya Stark was just hanging out with that guy with a lot of faces the whole time, and the whole season was just that guy with a lot of faces? And that kind of was this class where you didn't get Keon Keeley. And then it's like, well, then the faces mattered. I get it. That's the thing. The faces came back around. But in the moment, I was like, how many faces can this guy have? I get it. You got a lot of faces. Who cares? Stab somebody. So there's a payoff. But Stephen, do we? So here's the thing that's difficult. If NIL didn't exist and Ohio State went 0 for 3 on big swings at defensive end at the end of a class, I think we could more definitively say, hey, mm-hmm. something's up here. It feels like to me going 0 for 3 on those big swings, first of all, they got to be swinging. You can't stop mm-hmm. swinging. But going 0 for 3 on those, I think think we sort of went immediately to an NIL conversation. Is there anything else at play here, though? Is there anything else here that it's not that Larry Johnson isn't great, but is he throwing 93 when he used to throw 97 or 98? I don't know. Was that part of it, why they didn't close, or was it almost really heavy NIL and the other schools just did a great job? Yeah, no, this felt very NIL because of the schools they ended up at, Damon Wilson, Georgia, uh, Keon Keeley, Alabama, who are, they, they kind of approach it like Ohio State, but obviously they go a little bit, they're able to do some things that Ohio State has probably preached at this point. They just weren't at their capability. And then obviously Mateo Oyelaye ending up at Oregon, who hadn't had a guy of his caliber since Kayvon Thibodeau, Thibodeau four years ago. So because of the schools they ended up at, you especially the Oregon one, you probably throw it more NIL, but so from the his fastball is still good. It's still probably an elite fastball because they finished second probably in all three of those races. In fact, they were part of the reason why Keon Keeley decommitted from Notre Dame in the first place. But maybe you need to add some other pitches. Maybe when you get older, you start to add the changeup and the curveball. And I, those are the only two pitches I know in baseball because I don't know much else about it. But you just start to you just start to diversify what you can do out there because uh, so yeah, as you get older your fastball is eventually going to slow down. So if that's still the only thing you have in year, once again, I don't know how long pitchers play in baseball, but in year 17, if the only pitch you have is a fastball the same way you had in year two, it's probably not going to be as effective anymore. So at some point, maybe diversify the different styles. Maybe don't lock in on guys as, you know, it's like, oh, these are my three guys. I'm with them to the end. And if it works, it works. JT Tuimolo out. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. Mateo Oyelaye, maybe you, just like open the net a little bit, cast a wider net. And there's a couple of coaches you can apply that to. So when I was in little league, 
one of my teams, I was probably like the fourth pitcher, like emergency pitcher. It's like, there's two guys pitch. There's a third guy. But if we're desperate, we'll put Doug in. So they brought me in in one game. And I don't know what I did, but I struck out somebody to end the inning. And one of my teammates running off the field came up to me and said, man, that was a great changeup you just threw. And I was like, that is the hardest I can throw a baseball. So that was whenever I think of a changeup, it's like, that is my 39 mile per hour heater teammate. But thank you, Nathan. I think part of this here is, again, it's context, context, context. Larry Johnson has been the guy right at the height. At the best of Ohio State in this era, it was Larry Johnson on the defensive line and Kerry Combs in the secondary bringing in big-time recruits. So Kerry Combs is gone. And the issue is, if Larry Johnson – I mean, it's just it's just hard to you, – your peak, you don't have a 30-year peak. Nobody does. What's your LeBron Fuck, James. I talk. Yeah. Well, but even this, I mean, LeBron – Part of the issue is LeBron. LeBron needs Anthony Davis. If LeBron was on a team like the 07 Cavs right now, he would not. And also, by the way, the Lakers are like 11th in the West. He needs true. more help. That's exactly yeah. my point. Larry Johnson is still great. But there was a time, Nathan, where you could say, all right, well, if Larry Johnson is your best recruiter on the defensive side of the ball, who's your best defensive coach? Who's your best defensive recruiter? Larry Johnson. Great. That's a lot to put on a 70-year-old guy. So now, especially in a world where Kerry Combs is gone, it's time for somebody else to be the best. So that Larry Johnson can be very good, but as you said, Nathan, not have to be the best. When Game of Thrones starts to go down a little bit, you better get that Kate Winslet basketball show in there. Hey, Kate Winslet, she's a, she was in Titanic. Now she's going to be a basketball coach. HBO, you can't just say, well, that's it. Game of Thrones isn't quite as good as it used to be. So now people are going to stop getting HBO. You've got to bring in something new, which... Might take us to a James Laurinaitis conversation, right? Which is like, you've well, got to find other people who can be great. Who's your number one recruiter on the defensive side of the ball? Because just like anything, if Larry Johnson's your two or you're even your three, ho, 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 ho. But Larry Johnson can't be burdened with saving the day on everybody. What do we, what do we think about this context, Nathan? Well, let me make another potentially terrible television analogy. What made Thursday nights on NBC back when uh, Stephen was an infant uh, must see TV. It wasn't just Seinfeld and it wasn't just Friends. It was Friends and Seinfeld. It was the combination. And Larry Johnson, for many of those years when he was, by all measures, great, like the guys he was bringing in and the way he developed them, no question the word great applies there. But the cornerback room was doing that too. And it was paired together like that. And as we've seen a, I'm not going to use the word collapse of the cornerback room, but certainly a uh, deficiency in high NFL draft picks out of the cornerback room now for several years that happens to coincide with where people have seen a drop off at edge rusher. And I know this is a conversation that we've had before in other contexts, but I think it's an important one to bring up here that as Larry Johnson, whether he's getting older or not, I think if we were to gone back 10 years with Larry Johnson, just with his edge rusher still have made the same impact. If there wasn't Marshawn Lattimore, uh, Denzel Ward, Gary on Conley, Eli Apple, the whole list of guys that were here at that same time. And were working in concert with that edge rushing. That's also something that's missing right now. Larry Johnson has to carry more of the load, not just in this like vague responsibility, but or this these these vague terms, but like in the actual product that's happening on the field. And when you see that just the, the offensive side has that right now with the quarterbacks and the wide receivers. As elite as Brian Hartline is as a recruiter and developer, 
doesn't matter if they're not bringing in elite quarterbacks and vice versa. Brian Day can be the best quarterback developer in the, in the world. But if that quarterback's coming to the school, and it's like, oh, there's no weapons here. They're probably going to stop coming over time. So I, to Nathan's point, yeah, you need both of those things for those, especially with those positions, quarterback, wide receiver, defensive and cornerback. You're all the time. The front end and the back end work together. You can't have one without the other. The best recruiting class Urban Meyer had, he had Chase Young, but he also had Jeff Okuda who committed six months after Chase Young did. So what? What was, because I actually did, I was not at Larry Johnson's table and I did not go back and listen to it. What was the actual, what did Larry Johnson say about his future, about how he's doing his job right now? What I, what were the words out of his mouth? I can give you the exact quote. First of all, he, he actually, after giving this quote, he also made an analogy to uh, Top Gun Maverick, which I thought that you would find yeah. um, especially <laughs> intriguing that he's like, because in, in Top Gun, they say something to, to, to Tom Cruise slash uh, Pete Mitchell about you're becoming extinct or something like that. But his exact quote was until you see an, an empty chair here, then you'll know I'm gone. If he's quoting top gun Maverick, he's got a 97 mile prior fastball. I'm good. Conversation <laughs> over. He also he, said he's going to have a press conference, like a big old press conference when it finally happens. That was probably more of a joke, but who knows? You, you know what? I actually, this is uh, there are there are assistant coaches in the College Football Hall of Fame, right? You don't have to be a head coach or a player to be in the I College Football Hall of Fame. I believe so. That feels like something that uh, I should be looking up and not asking on a podcast. But this guy's a Hall of Famer, right? I mean, that's like, this guy's a Hall of Famer. So, like, if he would have said, hey, let me tell you, as they said in Top Gun, if you want to play sand volleyball, make sure you're wearing dungarees. If he would have said that, it would have been like, oh, my God, Larry Johnson's lost it. But he's not quoting Top Gun from 1986. He's quoting Top Gun Maverick. So, okay, we're all good. So he's not going anywhere. I mean, this is, this is well, I mean, the actual reality of this, he is going somewhere at some point. He's not going to coach at least 90. So this is going to be – we're at the stage now. Once you're over 70, like this conversation doesn't go away. And he actually, I think, is like right around the same age as Nick Saban, who I think just turned 70. But it's – Both of them are 71. So we're, we're like we're right there, right? I mean, it's it's not a – you know, Larry Johnson is the Nick Saban of defensive line coaches. Like I don't I don't think that's a – I don't know that anyone would make that comparison. But, I mean, he's he's as good as it gets at the thing that he does, which is what Nick Saban is. So – this is just going to be a reality, and I do think it is something that is going to have to be worked out. And because, Nathan, just the way it works sometimes is so, sometimes people don't have the same timeline. And that the timeline of the individual whose career and life it is doesn't always match up with the timeline of their boss. And their view of their production and the way they're doing their job does not always match up with the view of their boss. And the bigger gap there is between those two views, the bigger the problem might be, Nathan. So I am not anticipating that this will be a problem for Ohio State. I don't think there's any reason to anticipate a problem. I think Ryan Day, I, I wouldn't expect it. And I think Larry Johnson is, I mean, he has been the consummate professional who, he didn't get, he didn't get screwed by Penn State, but he certainly, I think, maybe gave Penn State more than Penn State gave him. I mean, this was a guy that wanted to be in the mix for the head coaching position twice and really didn't get more than a cursory glance. I, I just, you know, this is a this is a real dude who got to Ohio State and made an instant impact and 
after they like lost Mike Vrabel, they could not have done better than Larry Johnson. Ohio State was very fortunate to have Larry Johnson here for the last decade plus of his career. But they got to figure it out, Nathan, right? I mean, this is just life and this is life at big time programs. This is, I mean, this is like corporate stuff, right? It's not, you don't have a mandatory retirement age, but we are getting to the point where this needs to be monitored, I think. Well, I think it's, it's a, do you have somebody right on deck that you can promote into that job? Or do you, Again, it goes back to what I was saying before, because I'm sure Ryan Day is thinking about this. He's he's evaluating the staff at all times. But again, I don't think he's evaluating. Is Larry Johnson as great as he was at his peak? He's saying, if Larry Johnson leaves, who am I getting to come coach his defensive line? Who's as good as Larry Johnson is right now? I think that is a fair question to ask. I'm not even saying that I know the answer to that. I'm sure Ohio State would go out and find a very good coach. And I brought that up last week in the text, too, though, that you know they just hired another uh, GA um, to work with the defensive line. And like every time that comes up, because there's a new one every couple of years, people are like, oh, is this the guy that's going to replace Larry Johnson? And I think my assumption is that is somebody they go outside, unless they really think that the guy inside is killing it. But I think they go outside and find someone to replace that level of gravitas and that level of just proven defensive line excellence and knowledge. I think they'd have to go outside to, to find that person because it it's not just, it, it's what that, that position means to the whole staff, really. They also haven't, I mean, we're, we, we're going to probably have a Laura and I's discussion here at some point, but Ryan Day's hire from within's haven't been on defense. They've been special teams in offense. And the offensive thing is more of just, I mean, he's an offensive guy, so maybe he can monitor that a little bit more, and more specifically quarterback and wide receiver, two positions where he's just as important in what's going on there as the guy who's actually running the room. So I agree with Nathan. That's He doesn't seem as open yet to the hire from within defensive guys because he's reset the defensive staff twice, and he's going outside with every single one of those hires every single time. But also, defensive line is too important of a position, especially in college football, NFL too, but especially in college football, for you to believe somebody can be something who's already in the building. That would seem like you would need to go outside. And he doesn't know him as well. It's like he 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 hires internally on the offensive staff because like he's in the room with the with yeah. the the quality control guys and the grad assistants. And he gets to know him. He's like, I like this guy. This guy seems smart. Let's keep him. And he doesn't know the defensive guys the same way. Okay. I think, I think we needed to talk about Larry Johnson and we'll, we'll all monitor it together. But this guy has been, we, we don't have to, we're, everybody knows the deal. And so I do think this, it's not like on the offensive line, but do they need a, do they need a big hit in 2024 at edge rusher? Given that, I mean, again, they who's the guy they got? Jason Moore, right? Yeah, so that's the thing. His, like a jack, like he's good. Yeah, he's really good, right? Yeah, Larry Johnson's had one bad recruiting cycle and is still recruit, produced a top 100 recruit, who I think is really good. Yeah. I think he's going to be a quality interior guy. Uh, yeah, sure. Yes, probably. You probably do need to go get a dude in this cycle just because JT seems like he's on the three and done path. We don't know what Jack Sawyer might turn into this year. He might be on a three and done path. You know, Mike Hall might decide he's a three end up. There's enough guys here who are candidates to leave after three years that you probably just need to replace that abundance of talent. So it's not, I don't know if it, if you had the list positions that need a dude in this cycle, it probably can't be higher than five on that list, but they probably need to go get one. 
All right, we come back. Let's talk more about the players on the defensive line who play for Larry Johnson next on Buckeye Talk. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. All right, let's talk about defensive ends. What was the vibe from Larry Johnson about how he thought these edge guys played? Zach Harrison, JT Tuimolowau, and Jack Sawyer first and foremost. I also, it is interesting that Javante Jean-Baptiste going to Notre Dame, I mean, he seems like, again, like a his wins above replacement might not be super high, but you you need to find like just sort of another solid dude to work in there. But Nathan, what's what vibe do we glean from Larry Johnson about how the edge guys played or are playing? I think wins above replacement is an interesting way to look at that because it's someone when they switch teams can impact that other team more than maybe their, you, you know, Hosni doesn't miss losing those wins, but Notre Dame would maybe really benefit from gaining them because you, they are still at a higher level. Um, you know, especially talking about the main guy. I mean, there was a lot of conversation about, you know, the, the, the younger guys, it it wasn't obviously as much about performance because they didn't play as much, but with, with JT to and Jack Sawyer, uh, both cases, differing levels of, you know, we like what we're seeing. We're seeing the right flashes. Now it's just a matter of finding consistency. Now it's a matter of both of those guys harnessing that and taking it up a notch. And, We'll get into a greater JT Tuomaloa discussion, but one thing he said about him, I think applies in both cases, um, was he said uh, the, the third year, the second year to third year is the biggest jump. And when I when he first said it, I thought he was talking about in, in a predictive way, like this is where you see a guy take the biggest jump. But I think he was actually saying that got clarified a little bit later from second year to third year. If you're talking about these guys who are on a potential star progression, that that is the biggest jump to clear. To, to go mm-hmm. from like being a really strong, solid player in your second year to being those names, the Boses, the Chase Youngs, to make that jump happen is it, it's it's a big jump to make to go into that third year and be able to grab that and, and pull it off. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, because I think it gives us perspective on, frankly, some guys who just came through the program, I guess, specifically uh, Zach Harrison, who maybe got to that place. Like, like what JT Tumaloau was doing last year was essentially the level of play of Zach Harrison. And now we're asking, does he jump up above that and be like something that is just crazy good? Or does he keep playing at a Zach Harrison level, which isn't bad, but isn't that thing that people have been sort of salivating for for a while in this program? Steven, I think you had a conversation about rotating those guys mm-hmm. and playing time for those guys. And I think that becomes part of the conversation for defensive ends in 2023 in a world where you had three main guys last year, like two main guys and a clear third guy. And one of those guys has gone. Well, JT Tuimolowau and Jack Sawyer, what percentage of the snaps will they get this year? And then you try to figure out who's going to come up behind them. Caden Curry, the other guys in that class who will be second year guys next year, Kenyatta Jackson, guys like that. How do they mix in? But what was the vibe on, how much the best edge guys should play in Larry Johnson's system. Yeah. 
the, the, I, I asked him this question when he was sitting there, and I was, then I had a conversation with I told the texter, so it's time for the text if you wanted to hear about that conversation two, two or three days before we even recorded this pod. But there is – he likes to rotate. He likes playing depth. He likes guys being able to play fresh. But is there a balance between that versus you have a guy who might be a dude, might be a 10-sack dude, who probably should not come off the field? And how do you balance that, making those decisions? Because basically questioning his rotations. And he said he has the method. He didn't want to give up the method, which is unfortunate for all of us. But there is a method to the madness that he has. And the thing he did say is, I know how long a player can go before he's no longer good. And the example he used for me was Joey Bosa, the year before he got there, which would have been, what, 2013 was the year before Larry Johnson got there, so that's Joey Bosa's freshman year. He said Joey Bosa played like 800-plus snaps that season. And Joey had a really good freshman year. I'm not taking that away from it at all, and I don't even think he was taking it away from it. But his stance was how many of those 800-plus snaps was Joey Bosa, the best Joey Bosa that Joey Bosa could be, versus he just racked up a lot of sacks. But if he played 800-plus, there were probably 500 of them where he just wasn't doing much because he was dead tired. And he wanted to cut that down. If a guy plays 400 snaps, but he plays all 400 of those snaps at the best of his ability versus playing – 600 plus snaps that's better long term for the program and better for the player and so I combated that by saying well you just kind of left Chase Young out there who would have played 600 plus snaps in 2019 had he not been suspended for two games and it led to 16 and a half snaps and his rebuttal to that because he he understood that and he agreed with it because he played almost 300 more snaps than anybody else did on that defensive end unit in 2019 and second I believe was Zach Harrison his come he combated that with Chase Young against Michigan, against Wisconsin, against Clemson, he was gassed. And he wasn't the same Chase Young that he was the first 10 weeks of the season when he racked up 16 and a half of those snaps. So I went and I looked at the PFF grades and the Michigan game, he was 79.7. The Wisconsin game, the second one in the Big Ten Championship game, he was 79.9. And then against Clemson, he was 66.4. There's only one other game he was below 80, and that's the Northwestern game where it really didn't matter. They were already blowing him out. Other than that, he lived in the 85-plus, even flirting with 90 range and had a 96 grade for the year. So there was some – I understood it from that standpoint of you can't just play a guy 60-plus snaps every single week because when you do that, he gets to the end of the season in the games that are most important, and he's not as effective because he is gassed. So there is a balance between JT's doing what he's doing against Penn State, I should leave him out there, versus – I see it in practice every day. So JT maybe can only go five or six plays in a row before he's no longer JT. PFF didn't do Ohio state in the 2013 season. They only started doing them in 2014. So yeah, Joey Bosa 2014. And again, this is like into the playoff and all those games, 928 total snaps, 2015, 670 total snaps, basically the same PFF grade, but that is, I mean, a, a pretty big reduction in, in snaps, Nathan, I I understand it. This was a point of contention. I felt like in the middle of the season, there were more questions about why aren't the best players at edge on the field all the time late in games. And then I actually feel like they did start playing a little bit more late in the season. The thing I think you're on alert for here is sort of as, as, as you guys have said, an older coach who's got a ways doing it, and that's it. And like, oh, that's it. Hey, if you think you can do better, maybe why don't you go bring in somebody else? And that's what you have to be like. 
stuck in your ways. Nobody wants anyone stuck in their ways. You want to maximize the team. You want to maximize each individual individual player, of course, but really what you want to maximize is the team, the defense overall. So I don't think this is a stuck in your ways. I refuse to listen to anybody. But Nathan, how much of a thing do you think this is? How much of a, is it? are we going to be on alert for? Man, it sure feels like they got two guys at edge who are above the pack. And it certainly feels like, man, you got to make sure you're playing them enough for them to make the, the most difference. I mean, I think it, it's it's good questions to ask of him, and I, I give him, obviously, the benefit of the doubt to some extent because of what he's proven. And if he's got data that backs this up, because there's a sports science element that probably comes into this at some point. They get readings on various things about these guys as they go through practice, so maybe that's feeding into some of the decisions he's making. I, I really don't think we – I don't think anybody notices who is on the field to some extent, as long as the production is there. And I think that's what has created the conversation the last couple of years is that the edge rush production has not been special. It hasn't. It just hasn't been special. It's been kind of fine. It hasn't been special. And people were used to a special level of production. But I also think you can't just necessarily say, well, if you just play JT to him a more, he would just break through to another level and play better. I don't think that's fair logic either. Uh, so... I am eager to see what happens this coming fall, though, because right now, and it's been a while since you've had this situation, there's always been, since I got here, like the guys are supposed to be sort of the studs, and then like a mix of some veteran bodies, right? You can go back to, like when I first got here, it was, you know, Jonathan Cooper was still around, uh, Jean-Baptiste was a little bit younger, Tyler Friday, and it, that, a lot of those guys were still here, obviously, up until last year. So you had this, like, mix, that, those guys in the middle level, and then the young, really promising guys. Well, now they've sort of cut out the middle level. And now you've got the two studs, the guys who are supposed to be, like, the studs, Sawyer and, and Tua Maloal. And you've got these three young guys who are only going to be second-year players in Curry, Kenyatta Jackson, and, and Obari, uh, um, Omari Abor. And what, how much do those guys take the jump you need in the second year to be on the field a lot and and produce. That's, I think, what decides this. It, it's really not, it, it can't be like a number, a vague number. I think it's got to be just about the production you're trying to get out of those guys. It is interesting. I'm just doing some quick math here. In 2022, the defensive leader in snaps played 762 snaps. The leading edge rusher played 504. That was JT. So 260 fewer than the most guy. 2021, leading defensive snaps, 734. Zach Harrison played 558. 2020, leading defensive snaps, the weird year, 520. Jonathan Cooper played 358. 2019, 746. Chase Young, the lead edge guy, played 576, but he missed two games that year. Mm -hmm. 2018, leading edge guy, 865. No, excuse me. Leading defensive guy in 2018, 865. Chase Young led the edge guys. 784 and coop was like in the 650s and that's because nick bosa got hurt and i think they didn't know if they had a third edge guy so they leaned on chase young and jonathan cooper all year chase young was only was was 80 snaps behind the leading snap guy on the whole defense and both his ankles fell off so right that was the year it was like Right. Mm-hmm. Chase Young's good, but he's playing with two high, high ankle sprains, and they're like, yeah, man, sorry. you got to play 70 snaps a game because Nick Bosa's torso got ripped in half. So I don't know. I, I Nathan, I think you're right, which is the thing of anything. If it works, great. Nobody questions things when it works. 
nobody says like I don't know like should Patrick Mahomes take like the third series off every game for the Chiefs it feels like maybe he could use a break nobody says that so I do think though Nathan what is to the degree that this is worth monitoring worth discussing worth tracking worth asking Larry Johnson about both in April and August and once we get into the season Again, I, I've said before, I think those three second-year guys are hugely important players. I think those guys um, on the list, it's kind of like what Stephen was saying about recruiting. I think on the list of like urgency, we haven't necessarily talked about them because offensive line and cornerback and some other things, quarterback competition, those are so prominent for us. But when you put together both the rotation that Larry likes to play with the knowledge that both Sawyer and JT Tumaloa are going into their sec their third years and could be gone after this year. Like those three, the development of those three second year defensive end guys is massive. And I think it's something we have to keep an ear on an eye on this spring as to how they're getting talked about what we're seeing in the glimpses that we get. And then on into the preseason. Um, one interesting thing, and we'll, this kind of folds into, uh, we haven't got to this discussion yet. We're talking about the Jack, but, because there's some really interesting stuff about what came out of those conversations about the Jack. But one of the things was that Larry Johnson said, Caden Curry needs to stay at defensive end to be a hand in the dirt defensive end and not be a Jack. And I think part of that is because of this rotation and because of how much they need him to be a real defensive end that fits into that rotation, not kind of this, this niche thing. He needs to be a guy that they can rely on and focus solely on being great at that job rather than like bounce him around. Yeah. I I think the Mitchell, when we get to the Jack stuff, Mitchell Melton's going to be a really interesting name there because yeah. I think you could say the same thing that you just said about Caden Curry about Jack Sawyer and him needing to have focus on that development versus trying to learn two positions at one time when he hasn't even mastered the first one. I think the three, those three young guys, they need those guys to come because just looking at JT snaps from last year, when they started playing good teams, the rotation went out the window. He played 55 snaps against Penn State, 52 against Northwestern. Played 64 against Maryland, 54 against Michigan, 51 against Georgia. So when they started playing competitive football, the guys who were the dudes actually didn't come off the field. So it was only an issue the first six weeks when they were beating everybody by 40. So they're going to run into that issue again. Can Amari Abor, Kenyatta Jackson, and and Caden Curry be enough that if Jack and JT do become what we think they can become, when they're playing Indiana, when they're playing Youngstown State, Western Kentucky, Purdue, you know, those games where you know it's going to probably be over by midway through the third quarter. Can they allow Larry Johnson to feel like Jack and JT only have to play 25 snaps? And maybe that's even a max because those are games where you can lean heavily on the depth because you don't have to waste them snaps there to bring up Chase Young. And even Draymond Jones put like 80, 800 plus snaps that year. If you have those young guys who can play more snaps in those games, when you do get to the Notre Dame game and the Michigan game late in potential playoff games, that's when you can ramp up JT and Jack and have them out there 55 plus snaps because you didn't use that early in the season. Let's do the Jack. So what, so is Jack a Jack or not? Is Jack going to be a Jack? What was the discussion, this interesting Jack discussion? What was it? It's TBD on him. That's what the spring is. Mm-hmm. They says the spring is going to kind of be used to find that out. Is he a Jack? Is Jack a Jack? Or is or are they going to have him focus somewhere else? And I don't know. I wasn't there at his table, so I didn't ask any follow-ups on this. But I don't know if he's saying that it's about discovering more about his skill set and where he should fit or 
does someone else step up to be enough in that Jack role that now they can have him just focus on one thing? Because as you said, there are some other candidates there. Mitchell Melton being a guy, now we're straying away a little bit from the the Larry Johnson conversation, but Jim Knowles was in on this conversation a little bit too, because people were asking him about the Jack. And this is what I said was interesting because um, Larry Johnson was asked about the Jack and like whether the answer for that could come from the linebacker group. And he kind of seemed open to that. And then Mm -hmm. simultaneously to that, a a few yards over, Jim Knowles is asked about, hey, could could the Jack come from the linebacker room? And he says, I don't know if I see that. So there's some interesting communication, I guess, that happens has to happen amongst the staff on that. But I, but, but I think it's also they're just in a weird spot numbers wise a little bit at defensive end. Uh, even if you move Mitchell Melton from the linebacker room over to defensive end, which I actually did on our scholarship chart, because the way Jim Knowles talked about him, he talked about him moving, having moved before the injury happened. So I think it's better to call him a defensive end at this point or with that group. And I think he's definitely a jack the way he talks about him. So and I think they're now probably recruiting with that position in mind in a way that they obviously weren't before Jim Knowles got there. So long-winded, like, do I think Jack Sawyer still ends up playing some Jack things? I think that depends on how healthy Mitchell Melton is, but he's not participating this spring. So like how healthy is he and, um, or, or does somebody else step up? We thought Caden Curry might be in the mix there. Caden Curry had talked about doing that a little bit last year, but Larry Johnson dismissed that. So, um, I, I don't know how to answer it right now, but it, yeah, it, it uh, sounds like something they have not made a decision on themselves. Yeah. I wonder if, cause I, I wasn't at Jim Knowles. I was at Larry Johnson that day. So I didn't know he had Jim Knowles had talked about that. So I went back and listened back to it, but it, it, it felt like it was more like from this linebacker room. Could anybody be a Jack than it was right, could right, in right. future linebacker rooms? Could somebody do it? Which is probably why Larry Johnson was more like, yeah, maybe down the line. While Jim Knowles was like, no, no but yeah, Mitchell Melton was the Jack, the other Jack. JJB wasn't playing it last spring, especially when they let us in there for that full practice. There was a period they had where it was 11 on 12 and the 12th man on defense was the Jack. And it was Jack Sawyer and it was Mitchell Melton rotating, both getting opportunities with the one at that point. And I think when he got hurt in the spring game, it really threw some stuff off because they were going to try some stuff out with Mitchell Melton just because that body type is probably more catered to that position, which is where Nathan just said they're recruiting to it. Now, Joshua Mickens, who is an edge rusher, is he's 6'3", 225. He fits that. A guy who can come in and be a Jack from day one, while Jack Sawyer is maybe a lot more of a traditional defensive end who just needed to get stronger. Because even when we were talking to them down in Atlanta – when we got the first time when we talked to defensive starters, the way I was asking Jack these questions and he, it didn't feel like he ever got comfortable there and he just wants to like, but also he would just rather put his hand in the dirt and get up to the passer every single play, which he even knows is not all that defensive ends do. Cause I wondered to me, this maybe seemed like the bullet conversation with Pete Warner, where it's like, Oh, Pete Warner's a Sam linebacker. Well, who's the bullet Pete Warner. Mm-hmm. So who's the Sam linebacker, Pete Warner, so sometimes you have a Sime linebacker on the field and sometimes you have a bullet on the field. So who are the people who do that? It's either going to be Pete Warner or Pete Warner. So the idea that's like, oh, Jack Sawyer, is he a hand in the in the dirt defensive end? Yes. Is he your best Jack? Yes. Like, does that, from the conversation, does that still seem doable that like, hey, when they want two defensive ends on the field, their best options are JT and Jack. And when they want one defensive end and a Jack moving around, JT's the defensive end and Jack's the Jack. Does that still seem possible, Nathan? Or did it feel like Larry Johnson wanted to get away from that and have Jack Sawyer just be a hand in the dirt guy? Which again, if that's the case, that's a big transformation from 
a year ago at this time, it felt like when Jim Knowles got here, people were saying like, Jack Sawyer was built for this. And now the idea that he might not play it would be quite a change, I think. He said, we have to get him a home this spring. Wow. Which to me is is not him saying he's going to do both. It's him saying he's one or the other, and we have to figure that out. So I did he say it that they have to figure it out going into the spring? So he has a home for the spring or will they do it in the spring that we're getting into a semantic argument to some extent there, because that's what the spring is for a little bit is some experimentation and figuring some things out. And he's as a third year guy, he's already got a good foundation, but I think we come out of the spring. I think we'll go, we'll come out of the spring game maybe knowing what really they want to do with him. Do they see him as being exclusively hand in the dirt or do they see him as someone who can, uh, have some mobility, move around, and do some other things. But if that's the case, if they decide going into the spring, you know what, he's he's a defensive end, he's hand in the dirt, then I don't really know how much jack they do this spring. Like, how much work are they getting with the jack this spring? If Mitchell Melton isn't really able to do stuff, then um, I, I don't know how much that is even something they'll be playing with this spring. You know who'd be a hell of a jack? Chip Trainum. I have thought about that. Mm-hmm. Tell Larry, tell Jim, <laughs> we figured it out. Don't tell it, Tony though. That, that, would, that would be <laughs> a jack the running back room. In in defense of Larry Johnson or in defense of Jim Knowles, that would actually technically be a jack coming from the running back room now. Yeah, he's a running jack. Uh, okay, this is a, this is a, this is that's informative. I thought that was inf- that's informative that they're doing that because it's a tough spot because it's like well, and it, so it feels like again Nathan, just real quick. If Jack Sawyer is settling at one spot, if Larry Johnson says we have to find him a hole, it sounds like it does not – it is not realistic that he would be only a Jack. Is that correct? Because I would say what he did last year, he was a Jack, but he also played defensive end. He played both last year, right? Because the hard question. part about that is if you make him only a Jack and then it's like, well, I didn't play against Wisconsin. Like how can you – How you don't want to live in that world. Where when you play a certain style of running team, perhaps, or it's like, well, I don't know, he didn't play yeah. that much against Michigan. Like you want Jack Sawyer on the field. He's probably one of your he should be one of your best eleven. So you don't want him to be all specific role guy if he can't do both. If he can only do one, it feels like he has to do only defensive end. I think that's a great question. Or or is is part of what they're trying to decide is 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 he what they want to be as far as that Leo eventually down the line? Is he close enough to that that now that becomes a staple position in the defense as opposed to what it was last year, which was sort of an accessory position in the defense? But it's also uh, he led this team in sacks him and Mike Hall. It felt like he made more plays when he was just a normal defensive so. end than compared to when he's trying to move all over the place and find holes. It's interesting. It was cool to see, especially once we finally got a chance to see it. But I'm not sure how imp- effective that position was even if he's still no, learning right. it i never saw I, does anybody remember flashes of oh that's what the jack's gonna look like when it finally clicks no the flashes of like hey you threw off the defense and all of a sudden here comes a guy firing through a gap and getting after yeah. the quarterback that was what tommy eichenberg did that was what right. the middle linebacker did it wasn't like the jack was doing that kind of stuff okay that, that jack conversation will continue this is put this near the top of the list for spring football but for now, we're going to end that part. And when we come back, we'll talk about defensive tackles next on Buckeye Talk. And back to finish off this defensive line, Larry Johnson edition of Buckeye Talk with defensive tackles. And as always, the most interesting guy at defensive tackle. We can't stop talking about him. Nathan Baird can't stop driving his bus. Mike Hall Jr. 
Was there a Mike Hall Jr. conversation, Nathan, in and around his season, his injuries, and his future? There was. There was a, a conversation about, you know, what exactly happened with the injury and, and Larry Johnson saying that it was, quote, an ongoing thing when it happened, which we talked to him about that after the season. That it was problems with both shoulders that were, you know, a, a thing that he just couldn't ever quite break through and that they hope to get him healthy. Uh, but I thought the, the most important thing he said, though, was someone asked him about whether Hall might fit at three tech. Obviously last year, Teron Vincent took most of those three tech snaps, even though they rotate there, but he was this team starting three tech. And they asked if that might be where Mike Hall's future is. And Larry Johnson said, maybe um, essentially the quote was Mike's a starter somewhere. And we just got to find a place to get him on the field. That, that came sort of in corollary to a lot of complimentary things he had to say about Ty Hamilton, who came and won that job over the course of last year. So I think there is still with Mike Hall a combination of getting him healthy, but then also taking his game to another level where he becomes one of those guys that uh, they they have to keep on the field the way he was early last year. It certainly looked like he was headed in that direction. And whether it was a combination of the injuries or what they wanted to get out of somebody who was going to be playing more of the like the 40, 50 snap uh 40 probably be more realistic where that kind of load and they wanted Hamilton instead of him. I think that's out there too. He's both things are still kind of converging for him. Do we talk about Mike Hall too much, Steven? Are we in love with him? Are fans in love with him or is, is this upside worth it? Worth the conversation? A little bit of both. I think he did fall into a little bit of the Talik Williams 2021 thing where he flashed early and so it's like, ooh, look at this new guy who's doing something. We're used to the edge rushers getting all the pressures, but now look at the interior guys getting them. But now some of this is injury, but also I he wasn't that impactful down the stretch in a way that maybe we need to be talking about him in this three-year and done plan that he might be on. I thought he was good, and I thought he might. I think he might take a step this year, but I don't know if his next step is, hmm, maybe he can be an All-American level player the same way we're talking about JT. And it felt like because he showed some things early, because he started on day one, we put him in a conversation that maybe he didn't belong in quite yet because we haven't seen the consistency. But at the same time, he wasn't fully healthy. So if he wasn't fully healthy, what happens when he gets fully healthy? Or do we see some version of what he was the first six weeks of the, of the season? Or is it just somewhere in the middle where he's a very quality interior guy who can get sacks, but a lot of those sacks were in situations where it was blitzes or it's when everybody's converging on the quarterback and everybody kind of wins. He just got there first. Tyler Williams, Mike Hall Jr. And Ty Hamilton are the first three guys that will think about a defensive tackle for next year. There is this group of younger guys, Nathan, probably led by hero canoe as the most interesting guy on the way up. What what was was there any kind? Of, this is sometimes it's hard to talk about young defensive tackles because it's like, all right, here's my list of nine things to ask Larry Johnson about, and who the fourth defensive tackle might be among the redshirt freshmen or true freshmen might not make the list of questions that actually get asked. Was there any young defensive tackle conversation, Nathan? There was some talk about individual guys. I mean, it wasn't quite presented in that same way. Although, I mean, that fourth defensive tackle out of the group will be a pretty important person. I mean, they will play a lot in the rotation. 
Uh, with Canoe, he talked specifically about how he came in at 330. And he's at more like 305 now. So they've seen a guy who is this massive dude uh, refine himself a little bit, slim down. It's still somebody that could maybe be in the mix at both 3-tech uh, or nose. Uh, but they're seeing better conditioning and strength out of him. He's just somebody that I think from the time he got here that has projected as maybe by this second year could start making an impact just because of uh, him being a little bit raw last year still and a little bit catching up to the game, but then also what he was going to have to do to to bring his body more in line with where it needs to be for this level. So I don't want to repeat the conversation we had on the depth chart podcast, but generally the idea of Fourth year, Ty Hamilton, third year, Mike Hall and Ty Leak Williams as your top three guys. And then Canoe and a couple of these other younger guys fitting in. Was the is the general vibe, Steven, like good to go at defensive tackle? Or does it feel like more that Larry Johnson feels like uh, they they need some guys to make jumps here for them to be where they want to be at that spot? Oh. I think he likes where the depth can be by the time we get to the fall. And that's probably the, the best way to put it right now is because you do have those top three guys, but he we're talking about depth at defensive end at the beginning of this podcast, and he likes to play as deep as six on the interior. So that's three for certain. Maybe Hero Canoe comes along. Maybe Jaden McKenzie, who's always been a long-term pop project in year, what is this, five for him now, is ready to be a part of that six-man rotation. And then maybe one of these freshmen gets in it, like a, a Jason Moore gets into this conversation, but – I, the possibilities are there for them to have at least four or five guys in this rotation, but it is maybe a C where things are in the fall, in the fall right now, just because it is very top heavy in terms of experience. Okay. They're just, there's, I think we kind of know the deal at defensive tackle. So that conversation just isn't it long as long. Nathan is, is just there. Is there anything else from the Larry Johnson experience in this interview session that we need to talk about that we haven't, covered yet or that won't be duplicating stuff we talked about on the depth chart uh no i think we've covered actually most of the you know he made an interesting <laughs> contrast with with kenyatta jackson and amari abor to go back to the defensive ends real quick those still are just so fascinating guys to me like does one of those guys make a, a separation from the other two like there's a little bit of a combination because we are a competition because we already know what they're getting out of of caden curry to some extent he flashed enough last year got enough experience he seems to be ahead of those other two. And he talked about Kenyatta Jackson's like, oh, we got a great pass rush from him. And he talked about Omari Abor about him being, you know, really strong and physical and how he's up to 265 now from coming in at 240. And so does that mean that those guys are, should we not be looking at them very as, as competing against each other as much because it's, it's still a contrasting style and it might be able to get something out of both of them at the same time, but it's not really one or the other that has to advance. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by what we're hearing about those guys in camp and what we see about them as those 15 practices go. And this is also their first spring. So right. some of the Caden Curry being ahead is he's been here six months longer than those guys exactly. are. Yep. I do wonder if we get to the fall and once everybody's kind of had the same off season, do either one of those top 60 recruits catch up to where Caden Curry is, or does he continue to have this lead and continue to, you know, push forward in the second year and make that jump. Kenyatta Jackson seems like this kind of pure pass rusher kind yeah. of guy, right? Out right. of Florida, top 100 national recruit. Is it possible that there are going to be some bus drivers lining up for Kenyatta Jackson this season, that he's a guy who year one is kind of just, he wasn't in for the spring. So it's just get your feet under you, but then it's bang. Go time. Is that on the board for a guy like this? 
I would imagine so. Yeah. I think people are, are really intrigued by where that's going to come from. And like I said before, when you start thinking about where they could be in 2024 with the, the top of this room possibly moving on to the next level, then he might have to be huge by that point. So it's it's I think people are very intrigued to start seeing the spark, start seeing the flash. But he again, it, they're in a good place talent wise, even if it's not a great place numbers wise or experience wise. But Curry, Jackson, Abor, like all those guys are legit prospects. Like they weren't, they're not taking developmental guys there and trying to speed them up and turn them into something by second year. This is when these guys are kind of supposed to be arriving by their second year. It looks apart. Uh, I think some Zach Harris, from a physical build standpoint, there's some similarities to Zach Harrison, who was also his big brother in the big brother program. But these long defensive ends who people might fall in love with at a combine one day, yeah, he looks it. And I'll tell you, Marvin Harrison Jr., you always kind of had a thing in the back of your head, but he didn't really do anything as a freshman until the Rose Bowl. And that's not saying there was something wrong there with him or with the program or whatever, but he went from basically nothing to, oh, he's the best guy in the country at his position. But he always looked the part. And he always had the little like percolating under the surface kind of thing. I just wonder when you say looked the part, Stephen, like that's a thing that people say, but like that also matters because it means – you have yeah. the physical attributes that when you mature into your body and get a handle on college football, it might be there immediately. So I don't want to, let's not put Marvin Harrison Jr. comparisons on Kenyatta Jackson, but if we're lining up, I don't know if we do, we have an award for this one. We have the award for like, you were hurt for a couple of years and now you're good and you go to the NFL. We have like the, hey, the fifth-year senior who sort of comes out of nowhere to help. Do we have the do-nothing-as-a-freshman-become-an-all-American-as-a-sophomore award? I guess it's the Marvin Harrison Jr. award. But if we're going to create the Marvin Harrison Jr. award and we're looking for candidates for 2023, I think maybe Kenyatta Jackson is first up among the candidates. It's the Marvin Harrison Jr. Ezekiel Elliott Award, where you do nothing as a freshman in your second year. It's like, oh, you help a team win a national title. Oh, hmm. oh you're better than everybody. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, I mean, that's the, I, I, I hope when I said he looks the park and I said it kind of monotone, I wasn't downplaying what he no, might no, no. be at all. Yeah. Because, yeah, because that's the whole when you don't do anything as a freshman, that's all we can kind of go off of is like what you look like physically. And what you might be hearing behind the scenes because they haven't actually done anything that the public can see. So when I say he looks the part, he looks like a dude who could be a six and a half, seven sack guy. Now, does he actually be it? I don't know. We saw the same thing about Zach Harrison. He ended up being a really quality player. Might be a first rounder, might not be. Who knows? But that's all with Marvin Harrison. It was all. Well, that guy looks like Garrett Wilson, but he's also like four inches taller than Garrett Wilson. And then the Rose Bowl came and said, okay, yeah, he's Garrett Wilson, but four inches taller than Garrett Wilson. Actually, no, he's better than Garrett Wilson. It hurts my heart to say that he's he's better than Garrett Wilson. And that, so that's what we're going off of here. Whether it's Kenyatta Jackson, whether it's, you know, Jermaine Matthews when he gets here, but especially with these, these freshmen who are now sophomores, that's all we're going to go off of until we see them in the spring. And then we're going to go, oh, yeah, they look better than they did as freshmen. This might be something. And then we get to the fall and start driving the bus with these guys. I might not drive the bus for a sophomore this year, though, because I don't know if I can repeat the Marvin Harrison performance of last year. That was that seems once in a decade. I'm, dr- I'm driving the bus for Marvin Harrison this year. 
<laughs> I'm going to be like, you know what? I think that, hmm, I think that Marvin Harrison Jr. guy might be pretty good. I used to not be able to say his last name or his first name, but I don't, I just have an inkling. It's a gut feeling. Uh, okay. We covered defensive line. That's what we wanted to do. The plan is for the next two pods to be a secondary pod based on what Tim Walton and Perry Eliano had to say at interviews last week, and then a linebacker pod based on what Jim Knowles and James Laurinaitis had to say. We'll also get into there with James Laurinaitis coming back to Ohio State. We'll get into like bigger picture things with Jim Knowles as a defensive coordinator. But I think I think this was a good encapsulation. Again, we don't have to rush it, right? We're not breaking news here. We're giving you our analysis of what people say. So we appreciate you guys making Buckeye Talk part of your week. Again, if you care at all about basketball, don't miss the Monday pod where we broke down everything wrong with Ohio State basketball right now and maybe how there could be solutions. Maybe. We don't know. For now, though, for Stephen Means and Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>